Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Ajam podcast. I'm your host, Rustin, and today I'm here with Scott Levi, the chair and professor of history at Ohio State University. Thank you for coming, Scott. Thank you very much for having me, Rustin. I'm lucky to sit in a room with Scott today and to talk about his latest book called The Rise and Fall of Hokand, 1709-1876, Central Asia in the Global Age, and it's published by Pittsburgh University Press. I've been dying to talk to you about your book. What made you interested in this part of the world, Central Asia and Hokand in particular? Sure. Thank you very much. And thanks again for having me here today. So my interest in Central Asia really emanates from some experiences that I had back in the 1990s. In 1991 and 92, I was living with a family in Lahore, Pakistan. And I was studying the Urdu language and um, as I was in my young 20s at the time. And this, of course, 91, 92 was when the Soviet Union collapsed. I remember vividly walking up to the airport in Islamabad and I saw this banner announcing the inaugural flight of Uzbekistan Havayolara. I had no idea what Uzbekistan was at the time, this brand new republic of Uzbekistan, announcing this flight connecting Islamabad with the brand new, the capital of this brand new country, Tashkent. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, Tashkent, that sounds so exotic. And now, yeah, I mean, I laugh, having lived in Tashkent now for a few years, uh, it's anything but exotic. I mean, it's a big city. It's Now it's almost 3 million people. It's, um, it's a major metropolis, right? But that was my impression when I was, when I was that young. I thought it was just something I had to learn more about, something I was really attracted to. And so I um, went and started my PhD program shortly after I finished my study abroad program in Pakistan uh, at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the Department of History there. And I prepared myself to start looking into historical connections between India and Central Asia. And that's really what got me started. I started, I moved from studying Hindi and Urdu to studying first Turkish and then Uzbek and Tajik uh, and then Russian eventually. And that took me off in this direction of studying the historical relationship between India and Central Asia. Now I've written two books on that subject, edited another one. And I mean, to answer your question, what got me interested in the question of Hokan, it emerged out of that initial project. The, my dissertation research culminated in a book titled The Indian Diaspora in Central Asia and Its Trade, 1550 to 1900. It was about these Indian merchants who were um, making their way up to Central Asia and orchestrating a merchant diaspora. And 1550 to 1900, they were extending and operating this merchant network at a point in time when, according to Central Asian historiography, the Silk Road was falling into decline and the region was becoming more isolated. But what I found was a new linkage, a new mechanism of connectivity, where it turned the received wisdom on its head. And so I wanted to explore that. So as I was trying to chart these uh, Indian merchant communities in Central Asia, trying to find out where all they were, you know, which cities, how many people. I found them in Bukhara, I found them in northern Afghanistan, and all these territories of the Bukharan Khanate. But I didn't find any in the Fargana Valley until I started looking at the Russian colonial records later in the 19th century. And at that point, I saw they were all over the place. And, you know, by the time the Russians showed up, there were hundreds of these Indian merchants in the Fargana Valley. And it made me wonder, really, what had happened in the interim. You know, if there aren't Indian merchant communities in the Fargana Valley in the 16th century and the 17th century, why are they there at the end of the 19th century? What changed? And that's what drew my attention to the Khanate of Khokand as a force for change in the region during this period when, again, the received wisdom suggested that the region was becoming increasingly isolated. 
And while we're on the topic of connection, this is a project that is at the intersection of different area studies, right? So most of the work that I know that is written on Central Asia is coming from the perspective of uh, Russian or Slavic studies or the Russian imperial history, right? Where um, what I really find amazing about your book is you're trying to make larger connections with other imperial powers. And for you, China is a huge player in the, the Hokan Valley. So before we explore this aspect of it, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what is the Fargana Valley? Why is it important? Why is it necessary? to write a book on it, and why was it controlled by this uh, Hokan Khanate? So the Fargana Valley, geographically, it's a remarkable space, right? It is um, about 8,500 square miles, right? So it's not terribly large. It's about the size of uh, New Jersey, maybe a little bit larger than New Jersey in terms of its square mileage. But it is in an area, Central Asia, ecologically, it's a semi-arid zone, right? With ample desert, the steppe zone is semi-arid. There's not an enormous amount of, of agricultural productivity across the region. But the Fargana Valley benefits from the snowmelt from the surrounding mountains. You have the Tian Shan, the Alai Pamir ranges that uh, encircle the valley. There's just around Khojand in Tajikistan, at the mouth of the Fargana Valley, it's the only natural entrance point into the valley. You've got the Sirdaria River, of course, that emanates from the valley. It emerges from the valley. So in this place where you have these really long, hot summers, in the valley, you've also got ample amounts of water. So ecologically, it's a, a, a particularly important region in, uh, in, in all of Central Asia for this purpose. This is one of the reasons why Central Asia's fruit is so extraordinarily famous, right? So if you haven't had a Central Asian or Uzbek melon, you guys are missing out. The best ones, I swear, come from the Fargana Valley. It's that long, hot summer, really good soil, lots of heat, and then lots of water. The sugars are so, so pronounced. You know, you travel around the world and you see lots of places where people say, oh, you've absolutely got to go see this. And often it's kind of a disappointment. If you're standing in front of the Taj Mahal, it's hard not to be really impressed. And if you eat a Fargana Valley melon, it's hard not to be impressed. Mm -hmm. It's that good. That's right. So geographically, that's one of the reasons why this particular valley. It's in southeastern Uzbekistan. It's now um, short of Tashkent Vilayat. It's uh, one of the most densely populated, if not the most densely populated region in all of Central Asia. But if you go back to Babur, who was the ruler of the Fargana Valley at the end of the 15th century, in the Babur Nama, he's recalling his youth in the Fargana Valley. He was ruled out of Andijan in the a city in the northeast side. For him, the valley was mostly wilderness. There was great fruit that was produced, but he goes on and on about how he loved hunting in the Fargana Valley, all of this wilderness. It's later on, it's during the, the period of Hokand, where much of that wilderness was actually cleared and started to be transformed into agricultural land, right? So that's part of the changes that we'll be talking about as we chart the, the trajectory of the history of, of Hokand. Yes, so your book starts in 1709 with the rise of a particular ruling dynasty called the Ming. No relation to the Chinese Ming, but the, the Uzbek Ming. Um, so what is happening in 1709? What is happening at the beginning of the 18th century that, that is causing this new rise of, of a political entity that becomes Hokand? The first half of the 18th century is a fraught period in Central Asian history and historiography. The Bukharan Khanate has been suffering a process of decentralization for many decades at this point in time. 
Bukharan control over the Fargana Valley had retreated already in the late 17th century. I, I think it's 1688 is the, the last time that the Bukharans were able to exert their authority beyond the Sardaria. What you see as Bukharan control is retreating is the Uzbek tribes, such as the Kenegas in Shahri Sabz that James Pickett has written about, the Yuz around Uratepe and Jizakh, and the Uzbek Ming in the Fargana Valley. These are groups of Uzbek tribes that had been loyal to the Tokai Timurid rulers in Bukhara, and they're throwing off their loyalty. They're claiming their own authority over the territories that historically had been assigned to them, but now they're claiming it as their own, and they're claiming right to rule over those territories. So according to the oral traditions of the rise of the Sharukhids, Sharukh Khan is what the later Uzbek rulers, he never would have called himself a Khan in the early 18th century. That's a title that's taken actually almost 100 years later. But these Uzbek chronicles, the Kokand chronicles, talking about the early Sharukhids, position him as the Uzbek Ming ruler who lays claim to the Fargana Valley as Uzbek Ming territory. And the Bukharans, as I said, had already withdrawn their control. Who's he laying claim from or against? It's a network of Naqshbandi Khojas in the Fargana Valley who are trying to achieve there what the Khojas of Kashgar had achieved before them. And they're trying to establish some kind of a theocratic state. And the Uzbek Ming, this is the, the, as I said, this is the oral tradition that comes down to us. And this is where I start the narrative. The Uzbek Ming lay claim against them. There's a great story. One of my friends in the in the field described this as the um, the Uzbek version of the Red Wedding, oh, wow. uh, where, <laughs> from the Game of Thrones, uh, where it's a particularly bloody wedding, but the Uzbek Ming come out on top uh, in this particular story, and that sets in motion the trajectory of the rise of the Sharukhi dynasty. The city of Khokand itself isn't founded; it's not established until the year 1740. So it's a long, slow process that, that takes shape over the course of the 18th century. But it, according to the oral tradition, it begins in 1709. So you've listed a lot of different groups and a lot of different people. Can you just give a lay of the land of what is the political climate like right now? You, you mentioned this fragmentation um, of what was Timur's empire, right? And um, the kind of disintegration of that into different Uzbek clans. Can you also expand outwards? What is happening to the east of Khokhand? What is happening with China? What is happening with Russia? What is happening elsewhere? Your book is in the global age. What makes this the global age? So that's a great question. What makes this a global age? That subtitle is uh, designed to be provocative. The argument that some of my colleagues would make is um, Khokhand is no Macau. If you want to look for globalization in the early modern period, you look to the maritime routes. And I can't argue against that, of course. Khokhand is no Macau by an, an order of magnitude. That's true. At the same time, Khokhand is also not isolated from these globalizing processes of the early modern age. And if my argument here is if you want to understand the rise and fall of Khokhand, it can only really be done in the context of placing our narrative Kokand chronicles, um, the, the histories of the region in that larger historical context. What kinds of larger world historical processes are taking shape that are connecting Central Asia to the economy of China, right? Nobody would argue that China is not globalized in, in the early modern period. It certainly is. Uh, my argument is that the Hokandis were able to leverage the relationships through Xinjiang 
with China and that that actually is an extraordinarily important part of the success of this Khanate. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean. You started your question by who else is on the field. Well, you have, of course, the Bukharan Khanate up until 1747. Following the Bukharan Khanate, the collapse of the Tokai Timurids, you have the Mangit, the Bukharan Emirate, that takes over and continues into the 20th century. You have the Hivan Khanate up in Khwarezm. Uh, you've got the Duranis who are establishing control in Afghanistan. You've got the Sikhs um, in the Punjab and Kashmir. To the east, you have this network of city-states in Altashahar, the six cities region, or in the um, uh, Khokandi Chronicles, they're actually called the Yetashahar, seven cities. Uh, and it's always fun to try and figure out exactly which cities they're referring to because different chronicles consider the uh, which there's seven cities a little bit seven. differently. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's more than seven. So where do you draw that line? Which ones are we referring to? But you also, to the north, have the three Kazakh Juzes and you have the Jungars. And the Jungars are an extraordinarily important player in that context of the 17th and 18th centuries. Right up until the um, Qianlong Emperor, the Qing Emperor, runs a campaign from 1555 to 1559 designed specifically to extinguish the Jungar threat. The Jungar had run campaigns into the Fargana Valley. They were a major force, and they were also um, uh, a force that had accumulated and, and started to actually build their own um, technologically current gunpowder weapons. I mean, they were a so major force. The Jungars, uh, at the same time, they were a nomadic group, right? That's right. So when you're thinking about archetypes or these stereotypes of nomadic confederations on the steppe, you're, you're saying that these, these people have gunpowder, right? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, they were very forward-thinking, right? And the Qianlong Emperor... Uh, had worked to establish a relationship with them. He, they had invaded Tibet. It was an extraordinarily expensive campaign for him to come back and recover Tibet. The um, campaign against the Jungars was extremely expensive. Peter Perdue has written a, a magnificent book, China Marches West, that from the Qing perspective that really examines the Chinese conquest of, of Jungar territories uh, in, in high definition. But when the Qing armies finished with the Jungars, they didn't just stop. They moved southward, and they took the cities of Altashahar, or Yetashahar, if you prefer, and incorporated that into what would later become known as Xinjiang, this new province. Right? It was a, it was a territory at the time. Right? The, this is, I'm using later terminology so that everybody knows where we're, where we're talking about. This enormous area that, not quite, but almost doubles the size of the Qing Empire territorially. So here you are in 1758 and 59, if you're sitting in Beijing and you're, you're looking at this enormous territory, and you have, at that point in time, an economy that is booming, the Qing emperor looks and, and determines he has two mechanisms by which he can govern this enormous territory, the carrot or the stick. And the stick would be to place garrisons across an extraordinarily large territory. And then you have to support those garrisons. Or he could actually use the carrot, which is to say use incentives to make the local population want to be a part of this Qing imperial system, make it to their advantage. And that's essentially what he did. Jim Millward wrote a book um, back in the 90s. Uh, I think it was Millward's first book. Uh, and Millward talks about the Xixiang. And I'm sure I just massacred that pronunciation. And my apologies to everybody who's listening who knows Chinese. 
But what this is, is um, it's a silver a surplus, a stipend that's injected into Xinjiang, given to local Turkic Muslim elites, designed to help support their efforts and also to essentially purchase their loyalty. As that's happening, the ruler of Hokand, now this is one of the descendants of Shah Rukh, a man named Irdana Bey, sent an embassy to Beijing and established an official relationship with the Qing. That relationship enabled the Hokandis to do three things. First, as the embassies would go uh, to Beijing, there was a gift exchange, and that gift exchange was always in the favor of the smaller state, Irdana Bey. So that's very well documented. At the same time, the ambassadors were permitted the rights of free trade. So these embassies were also commercial missions. And these merchants who are accompanying the embassy are working on behalf of Irdana Bey. This is pulling enormous amounts of resources into his personal coffer that he can use to develop systems of loyalty and patronage around Hokand. So remember, this is 1758, 59, 60, 61 is when the uh, relationships are really being established. Third, and this is by far most important, is that the Hokandis were able to establish the rights for Hokandi merchants, known as Andijanis, to conduct transregional trade across the Tian Shan establishing their own merchant network across Xinjiang, right across the sedentary zone, Altashir or Yetashir. This was extraordinarily profitable for Hokand. So through these networks, through the Qing annexation of Xinjiang, Hokand found itself in a position to be connected to China's eastern seaboard. Silver is being pumped in, the Qing are deliberately encouraging economic development, agricultural expansion. This is from the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century. The population of Xinjiang is increasing, the agricultural territory is increasing, and Hokand leveraged that to great advantage. Right? So Hokand in the Fargana Valley found itself in a position to link China with the world to the West. Now, we know China and, and Russia were trading through Kyakta and Nerchinsk, right? There, you know, there's a, a substantial amount of literature on this. And you know, the northern trade routes across Siberia, those are important. But what we're covering is that there was a corresponding movement of merchandise and wealth westward to the south that has not yet been, well, only with this book, I suppose, is really being plugged into that particular discussion. What? Is this influx of money doing to not just the economy, but the political sphere in Hokand? How does it change the political circumstances in the local environment in terms of its relationship with its neighbors, in terms of you know, how it's able to conduct its daily affairs? So this injection of wealth changes things dramatically, uh, as, as one could imagine. As I mentioned, the Hokandi rulers are able to start purchasing loyalty right? So they're, they're able to use these resources to develop patronage networks. Uh, over the course of the 18th century, you see um, the Hokandi rulers transforming from, you know, ruling over a small corner of the Fargana Valley, maybe a quarter of the valley, and then having multiple city-states across the valley, actually asserting its control over the entire valley. That's achieved under the reign of the, the last ruler of the 18th century, uh, Narbudabe rules right up until 1799. Uh, he's got about a 30-year reign. So you see territorial expansion. In terms of what you see on the ground, now legitimacy, which during the Bukharan Khanate had been linked through the Chinggisid lineage, right? This were Chinggisid rulers. Now legitimacy is being attached more to religious motivations, religious connections, religious relationships. 
So a lot of money is being pumped into developing a more developed religious infrastructure. You start to see the establishment of first dozens and then literally hundreds of mosques across the Fargana Valley. And then some of these are imperial. I mean, they're really grand mosques, right? So um, uh, Umar Khan, Madali Khan's mosque, we have images of some of these. Umar Khan's are still standing. This Islamic geography is really spreading throughout the valley. At the same time, this is uh, the stability, this period of stability that Khokhan is experiencing is a point of attraction. So you see groups migrating into the Fargana Valley. I had mentioned earlier that the first half of the 18th century, it's a traumatic period in Central Asian history, especially for the Bukharan state and for those who are dependent upon the Bukharan state. So you have the Jungar invasions of the Kazakh steppe. You've got what um, Michael Hancock Palmer has been working on, the Kazakh barefooted flight, where the Kazakhs migrate southward into southern sedentary zones. And it's, it's traumatic. And some people move. And they're, you know, they're fleeing, they're refugees. And some of these refugees make their way into the Fargana Valley. And later on, so some of them are leaving because of push factors. Later on, as you see Khokhan become a more, more of a point of stability, people are attracted to it. So you've got push factors and you've got pull factors, but you get more and more people. One of the mechanisms that the Khokhan Dikhans used to manage their state was advancing irrigation agriculture expanding irrigation agriculture. So we start to see Babur's wilderness transform into a much more densely populated, agriculturally productive zone. Here, actually, I relied heavily on the work of Michael Thurman, who's a scholar who specializes in irrigation issues, works in the Caucasus and in Central Asia as well. So Mike Thurman's work was, was really great. Conversations with him were really helpful in understanding the, the magnitude of these projects. So there's a series of about 10 of these really large-scale irrigation systems that were being dug out over the course of about 100 years. They start during Narbuda Bay's reign, and they're not done until I mean, we get to the very end of the Khanate. Each of these expands irrigation over about 25 to 3% of the Fargana Valley. But 10 of these, you know, we're talking more than 25% of the valley on top of the agriculture that was already there. So you go from a Fargana Valley that was home at the time of Babur to maybe a couple hundred thousand people to by the time we get to Eugene Schuyler, the American diplomat, shows up in 1873 and gives us a really you know, pretty thorough analysis of um, uh, the demographics of the valley, you're looking at 1.5 million people. That's a tremendous jump. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So again, I mean, when we think of Central Asia in the global age, like I said, no, it's no Macau, to be sure. But in some ways, I think the fact that it is so far inland so remote from what we assume to be the main currents of globalization makes it the perfect test case to see, you know, to ask that question, does globalization take shape in Central Asia? And the answer from my research on this book is yes, absolutely. That's amazing. And so you end the book in 1876. And we are talking about this global age, as you mentioned, and these connections with China. And we are hinting at this emergent power in Central Asia, which is the Russian Empire. Can you just explain a little bit about how does Khokhan fall out of the sphere of influence of China and slowly integrate it into uh, Russian imperial visions? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take that on. Thank you. That's, that's really the, you know, this question is this, you've got the, the gradual rise of Khokhan. You've got a 40-year period of efflorescence 
where there's territorial expansion. It's dramatic. I mentioned the Fargana Valley. By the end of um, the reign of Narbuda Bay, the territory of Hokan covered the Fargana Valley. That's 8,500 square miles. Forty years later, during the reign of Madali Khan, the territory of Hokan covers 250,000 square miles. It increases over four decades by a factor of 30. Far into the Pamirs, they actually occupy one Qing city. They take Tashkurgan, and I, I think it's primarily because Tashkurgan paid its taxes in saltpeter, one ton per year, and saltpeter is one of the critical ingredients in, in making gunpowder, right? These resources are, are being used to create more current gunpowder weapons and enabling this expansion into the uh, southward into the Pamirs, northward into the steppe. And then you have this period of just a terrible spiral and collapse as you go from 1842 to 1876. There are a couple of different stages. In 1842, uh, one event that really disrupted Hokan's outward trajectory is that um, the Bukharan Khan at the time was, for very good reason, I think, becoming nervous uh, about Hokan's expansion. I, I would assume, considering the size of Hokan's army at that time, which was roughly about 100,000 troops, that he would expect that Hokan was expanding, was, was making plans to expand westward into his territory. And in fact, based on the Hokandi records, is, he, he was right. That, that was actually on the, in the cards. That was, that was the next plan. But you had this ruler, Madali Khan. He had earned a reputation for being debaucherous, not really following Sharia. So legitimacy based on religious Which was really reasons, important, as you mentioned. Which was really important. People wanted to have a good, just ruler. This wasn't working so well for him. So when the Bukharans ran an invasion, the army really didn't put up any sort of a fight. Now, from the Bukharan perspective, the Bukharans came in and they were victorious. From the Hokandi perspective, this was a regime change. Ten weeks later, the Bukharans were pushed back out, and you had a new ruler, Sharukhid ruler, from a different part of the family, but they had gotten rid of Madali Khan, and now they had another ruler. So you have a period of um, some instability that uh, follows this regime change. So that's one factor. 1853, two things happen that are extraordinarily traumatic and that make certain that Hokan will not recover from this death spiral. First is the Qing economy is in crisis. Uh, there had been a series of rebellions in China, and the Qing in 1853 had to halt this Xixiang, again, apologies for the pronunciation, but the silver stipend came to an end. With that, Hokandi opportunities in Xinjiang, in Altashahir, and the territories to the east, were significantly more difficult. Secondarily, in 1853, the Russians took one of the uh, one of Hokan's most important outposts at Akmasjid uh, in the steppe. The Russians occupied that outpost. Hokan had been defeated by a new enemy. So the Russians for three years are occupied by the Crimean War after that, but after 1856, Russian expansion southward toward Hokan continued. 1865, the Russians take Tashkent. 1868, they defeat the Hokandi army. And at that point in time, Hokan now is, again, it's, it's restricted back to the Fargana Valley, the territory of the valley. So the difference here is you had Hokandi economic relationships to the east with the Qing that were working to the advantage of the locals. The Qing were far away. They governed through local nobles. The Russians were very present and they were very aggressive. 
The Qing injected money into the regional economy deliberately. The Russians were pursuing revenue streams. They wanted this to be profitable. So for the Hokandis, the Russian expansion in their direction, presence, and then occupation, this was extraordinarily disruptive. Uh, so the Russians, if you look at the Russian historical sources, they say these Hokandis can't govern themselves, it's pandemonium. From the Hokandi perspective, yes, it was pandemonium, but it was the Russian presence that was causing it. They were not able to recover a point of stability. The final real ruler of, of Hokand, Khudayar Khan, uh, whose palace, the Ark, is, is still in Hokand today. It's a museum. It's a great place to go and visit. Highly recommend it. If you go, have a couple of melons while you're there. It's great. Khudayar Khan ruled three times. In his final reign, a uh, period that lasted about 10 years, he tried desperately to pull out all the greatest hits that his predecessors had used. The Uluh Nahar, this new irrigation canal is going to be put in place and it's going to expand irrigation agriculture. Everybody's going to have plenty of farmland to work. He tried to ease ethnic tensions that had become really tense. I mean, really, really difficult in the, the decade leading up to that. He tried to promote transregional commercial interactions with the Russians and use that to pull more revenue into, uh, into the Fargana Valley. But what we find in the sources on both the Russian and the Hokandi side is that the situation was already too fraught. And the only way that the Hokandis were going to make a united front it wasn't going to be behind a, a ruler of Hokand unless that ruler was going to advance an anti-Russian platform. And so you see these pretenders to the throne who advance just exactly that kind of platform. And that gets them the attention of Konstantin von Kaufmann and then Mikhail Skobielov and the extinguishing of the Khanate in 1876, the establishment of the Fargana Oblast in its place. That is quite a rush through history you just did in, in 30 some odd minutes. But just if you could leave us maybe something to take away from looking at Hokand and looking at globalization and looking at this global period in which you're, you're talking about and seeing the winners and losers and this interconnectivity, this integration and this exclusion. What should people take away from your book? One is that uh, Central Asia in this period should be considered alongside other states that are emerging, flourishing, and collapsing at almost exactly the same time. And this is, this is a story of the imperial age, right? The global economy is expanding rapidly. You've got the French Empire, the British Empire, the Dutch Empire, the Russian Empire. They're all expanding. They're all occupying new territories, presenting opportunities for particular rulers opportunities that these rulers are able to exploit for some time, and then inevitably collapse. So if we're talking about the Sokoto Caliphate in Africa, or um, we're talking about the Sikh Khalsa in, in northwest India, right in Punjab, or if we're talking about um, Siam, or I mean, so many examples, I point to a bunch of them in, in the book. The story of Hokand, in a lot of ways, it, it fits in that particular model. So it really is a, a global story of the 18th and 19th centuries. Secondarily, a point that I, I want to emphasize before we close is um, the importance of doing that focused local research, right? Deep philological research with the primary sources of the region. And taking those sources seriously, thinking about them critically. I mean, I worked with about seven different Hokan chronicles. They had different biases, different agendas. And selecting sources that gave me the ability to see those different perspectives helped me triangulate as a, as a historian. But analyzing those sources in a global context helped me ask questions of those sources that I wouldn't have been able to ask had I just worked with those sources alone. 
So putting these two factors together, I think, um, I mean, if the book is successful, it was that methodology, that connected history methodology, taking the, the local sources seriously, and then contextualizing it in a, in a global perspective. And hopefully, I mean, people who are interested in Central Asian history, I hope really are, are uh, find it to be a worthwhile study, but I also hope it draws attention from outside of the field. And as someone who is interested in Central Asia, I can say that I really enjoyed reading it. And I think I mentioned this to you before, but um, I took the book with me to St. Petersburg and it like went through three or four different hands. People were picking it up and reading it in a, in a week. So like it definitely is something really new, something really refreshing, something that is incredibly intellectually rigorous. So I want to thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your book. Oh, thank you, Ruston. My pleasure. That was Scott Levi. He's the chair of the Faculty of History at Ohio State University. And his book is The Rise and Fall of Hokand, 1709-1876, Central Asia in the Global Age. And that's by Pittsburgh University Press. And for our listeners, reach out to us on social media, Facebook, Twitter. Try to join the conversation. So until next time.